Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you and those of you joining online as well. We're going to start our brand new sermon series, but before we do, I want to do a brief important advertisement. We have joined with Northwestern University to offer a Master of Arts in Theological Studies degree. It's a two-year degree, fully accredited. It is designed for those of you who are already in a busy life professionally. You can still take this, and uh, if you are in ministry, you can take it. It has a greatly reduced rate, for which we thank Northwestern for, and the reason we're doing this is because we hear and believe that many of you would like to go on and and earn a degree in uh, spiritual things, especially in the area of theology, understanding God's Word and how it applies to the work and ministry of His church. And as we expand and multi-site, uh, we want to raise up uh, future leaders from our congregation. And so it's important that you know, folks who haven't gone through theological training get that. So if you're interested, go to door one or door two at the information center. There's a card about it. Or simply go online. It's there on our website. And our cohort starts this fall. I'll be teaching. Uh, a couple of courses and uh, others will be online and uh, I think it could be a great experience. If you know somebody, they don't have to go to our church, they would be interested in something like that, please pass the word. All right? All right, all right. Are you there? All right, good. You're supposed to be my most awake group, okay? You have been pumped with caffeine this morning. All right. So the series we're beginning, uh, I entitled Christianity, Really? Because there are a lot of people today who question the validity of the, of the Christian faith. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at some common uh, objections that people offer toward why they don't believe uh, the message of Christianity. And we're going to start with one of them today. And if you're here and you've come because you heard about the series, you have objections, you have questions, doubts, I'm glad you came. And I hope that what will happen is we'll answer some of your questions. You'll become more convinced and perhaps even put your faith in Christ if he calls you to that. And for those of us who already believe, I'm sure you have family and friends and coworkers and fellow students who often ask you questions that are hard to answer. And what I hope will happen is you'll gain some information and insight that you can pass on to them. And that way you'll help them begin to make decisions about whether or not they should put their faith in the message, which is the person of Jesus Christ. So as we start, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4 in your New Testaments. If you're using the Bible we provide, it's page 1860, 1860. You might be asking, why is it called 1 John? That's because afterwards comes 2 and 3 John. Paul, uh, John wrote these letters to uh, new believers who were living in what we think of today as modern-day Turkey. And uh, I was just there recently with a group of, a group of Wood Dalers, uh, revisiting these biblical sites. And as I was there, I thought about First John, I thought about the early Christians and the amount of pressure they faced, false teaching, worldly philosophies that they had to combat and to stick to the truth. So it's very appropriate for us. I'm going to read the first six verses of First John chapter four. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now it already is in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, 
Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So John is saying, listen, new Christians, understand that there is a worldly philosophy and then there is God's truth. Don't confuse the two. And don't pay attention to what you used to listen to. Pay attention to this new message, even when it's drowned out by all the competing voices. So one of the objections to Christianity is simply stated that Christianity is too exclusive. Have you ever heard something like that? You know, why do you Christians believe that your, your handle on the truth is the only means of knowing God and of worshiping God, that you somehow have the truth alone? Can't we all instead coexist like you see on the bumpers on the back of cars, right? I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, okay? I won't ask if you have one, but... The idea here is, you know, can we just hold hands and sing kumbaya? Can we all just, you know, have our own unique religions and just kind of get along with each other and coexist? I mean, aren't we all kind of saying the same thing when it's all said and done? Why is it you Christians always have to separate yourselves? Why do you have to be this, like, exclusive group? Well, I want you to listen carefully. Christianity is not the only exclusive religion. Every religion claims to be exclusive, if you think about it. Dr. Ravi Zacharias, who's a brilliant Christian thinker and uh, has studied world religions, wrote a book years ago called Jesus Among Other Gods. And in that book, he says this, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not. Every religion at its core is what? Is exclusive. Therefore, secularists, those who are irreligious, those who don't believe in religion, believe that if we could get rid of religion in the world, our world would be so much better. They blame many of the issues of our world, oppression and violence on religion. And while some instances that is true, it's not really true about everything, they believe that reasoning and technology will eventually lead us away from religion and our dependence and our need for it. So one of the lies that they promote, many of our universities and, and secular you know, kinds of um, think tanks, is that religion, and Christianity in particular is dying in the world, that it's on its way out. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the term fake news? We hear a lot about it, don't we? I want to suggest to you that that statement, that idea that religion and Christianity is on its way out is fake news. I picked up a little bit of this fake news just a couple days ago from BBC.com. And on BBC.com, I read these words. A growing number of people, millions worldwide, say they believe that life definitely ends at death, that there is no God, no afterlife, no divine plan. And it's an outlook that could be gaining momentum despite its lack of cheer. In some countries, openly acknowledged atheism 
has never been more popular. Quote, there's absolutely more atheists around today than ever before. Both in sheer numbers and as a percentage of humanity, says Phil Zuckerman, a professor of sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, and a author of Living the Secular Life. Do you think he's biased? According to a Gallup International survey of more than 50,000 people in 57 countries, the number of individuals claiming to be religious fell from 77 to 68% between 2005 and 2011. While those who are self-identified as atheists rose by 3%, bringing the world's estimated proportion of adamant non-believers to a whopping 13%. While atheists certainly are not the majority, could it be that these figures are a harbinger of things to come? Assuming global trends continue, might religion someday disappear entirely? And I can almost hear a, a group of people cheering on the sidelines, we hope so, we hope so. Is religion, and Christianity in particular, dying out? The answer to that question is absolutely not. And it will never die out. I'll tell you one of the reasons why. When we were reading 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John said to these early believers, you need to test the spirits. We live in a spiritual world. And we are all hardwired to want to worship someone or something, to believe in someone or to believe in something. Now, the question is, am I believing in the right someone? Am I believing in the right something? But it's hardwired in us. And even if I want to say that, you know, technology and science and reasoning is going to replace religion and Christianity. In essence, what I'm saying is technology and reasoning and science is going to be the new religion. Because we're all looking to something that will give us a sense of purpose and meaning and salvation in our lives. The problem is, as secularists are quickly finding out, that the more technologically advanced we get, the more intelligent we get. What's happening is people are becoming more religiously concerned. Do you know why? Because it's leaving them empty. It's not technology and science and reasoning is not fulfilling their life as the Enlightenment thinkers thought it would. It's leaving us more empty, so we're searching even more. Did you know that when Christianity was persecuted by the Roman Empire, way back when? Do you know that the church grew exponentially? And the church always grows when it's persecuted. Did you know that? In China, for instance, the 1940s, when Western missionaries were kicked out, missiologists, those who studied missions, all began to forecast that China would grow very dark and very, very, you know, uh, empty because the Western missionaries were gone. But guess what we found out later on? the church actually began to really grow in China as indigenous Christians began to gather and began to worship and began to share their faith. Today, many religions are growing. One of the fastest growing religions in the world is Islam. It is predicted that between 2015 and 2060 that Muslims will grow at a rate twice that of the overall population growth rate of the world their growth rate will be twice as fast. That by 2060, 33 point some percent of the world will be Muslim. That Christianity will no longer be, by the end of the uh, second half of this century, Christianity will no longer be the major religion in the world. All that to simply say, you're never going to stop religion. 
It is hardwired in us to worship. And the question is, are we worshiping the right person? Are we worshiping in the right way? So knowing you can't stop religion, secularists oftentimes, and even religious people, will simply say, we all need to keep our religion to ourselves. That will prevent oppression, violence, disagreement, all kinds of difficulties. And the reason they say you should keep your religion to yourself and I'll keep my religion to myself, not to let it enter the public square, so to speak, is because all religions eventually lead to the same God. It's just different pathways of getting there. And you hear that all the time, all the time. It is like a constant hum in our culture. All paths lead to God. Have you ever heard something like that? Well, listen carefully, and this is alarming, and I encourage parents and and our young adults, our students, to pay attention to this. The highly regarded Pew Forum on Religion did a study of 35,000 Americans to find out how many believe this idea that all roads lead to heaven, so to speak. There are many statistics that were given from all kinds of religions, but the one that shocked me the most was the statistic about evangelicals of which we would consider ourselves to be. It was discovered that 57% of evangelical church attenders said they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Did you hear that? Not just 57% of people who say they're evangelicals, but 57% of evangelicals who are church attenders. I mean, that means they admit they go to church. Believe, no matter what is preached or taught, believe that somehow, yes, all religions lead to the same place. Now, how can that possibly be? Because it goes so opposite of what the scriptures teach. It's either because of ignorance, or it's because we bought into heresy, or it's because we fear being out of step with the culture. We don't want to be politically incorrect. And so, you know, it sounds good. Why can't all religions lead to heaven? I know other good religious people. Therefore, yes, that's how it's all going to work out. Now, it sounds wonderful, but here's the problem. It makes absolutely no sense. And verse 5 tells us why. It says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. John's saying, listen, you used to follow worldly philosophies, ideas that came from men. Stop doing that. If you follow that, you get the result that it brings, which is just simply man-made results. You and I have to be careful. Our students, you guys have to be careful. They're inundated by this all the time. Parents, you got to be sharp about this. Protect your kids, your students. Talk to them about this. They hear a constant hum that tells us that we are a pluralistic culture, that all roads lead to heaven. And that in itself is absurd. Even if you're not a Christian, that idea doesn't make sense when you follow it all the way through. Let me tell you why. I want to tell you about a parable that sometimes is used in the East to try to help people believe that all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to God. It's a parable about three blind men who happen on an elephant. And now they're trying to describe the elephant, what an elephant is. One of the blind men has a hold of the trunk and he's feeling it and moving it. He says, an elephant is very long and round and very flexible. The blind man who has a hold of the elephant's leg says, you're wrong. He said, elephants are short, thick, and really stiff. 
The third blind man has his hands on the side of the elephant. He says, you're both wrong. Elephants are flat and huge. Then the teacher says, that's the way it is with religion. We're all kind of blind. We're partially right and we're partially wrong. Therefore, nobody can claim they have seen the whole elephant. Therefore, we all have a piece of the truth. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India, heard that over and over again. And finally, figured out how to respond to it. The way he said to respond to that parable is to understand that the only way someone can say you only have a piece of the elephant, not the whole elephant, is they themselves would have to see the whole elephant. Follow me? I can't tell you you've only got part of the elephant unless I see the whole elephant. Same thing is true with truth. I can't tell you that you've got part of the truth and you've got another part of the truth and you've got another part of the truth unless I stand back and see the whole truth. Does that make sense? And if I'm standing back saying, I see the whole truth, that all truths lead to heaven, what have I just done? I've just imposed on you an exclusive view and said, you should follow my exclusive view of the truth. The very thing I tell you, you can't do. Does that make sense? Does it make sense that all paths lead to heaven doesn't make sense? Because it means that somebody somehow stepped out of the entire universe, saw the whole ball of wax and came back and now is enlightening all of us with the fact that we all got a piece of the truth. And I got to believe that they're right. That takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? I mean, for an atheist to say there is no God means that that atheist has to be everywhere in the universe at one time to know there is no God and even be able to live in other dimensions as we're discovered from quantum physics and know there is no God and come back to us and tell us the evidence clearly points there is no God. That takes faith. So what have we learned so far? Well, we've learned, first of all, that every religion, really, when it's all said and done, is exclusive, has exclusive views of who God is or who God is not. We've also learned you can never get rid of religion. It's never going to disappear. We're hardwired for it. We've also discovered that it's not true that all religions lead to God, unless you're God and know that and come and tell the rest of us of that, which then leaves us with a huge question. What is religion? What is religion anyway? Religion is really, when you think about it, trying to answer the big questions of life. Why am I here? Where am I going? Who is God? How can I connect with God? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? What happens after death? By the way, in July, I'm going to do a whole five-week sermon series on what happens after you die. But right now, that's what religion tries to answer. And it takes faith with whatever answer you come up with. Wouldn't you agree? You You got to have faith. I mean, you actually have to have faith to believe there is no God. We've already demonstrated that. So the question becomes, what truth, what religion should I put my faith in? What should I believe? And I want to suggest to you that Christianity offers the best answer. Christianity does more for humanity than any other religion could ever possibly do. 
So let me, let me share with you what I mean by that. All other religions are a form of escapism. All other religions are, to, are about how do I escape my body, how do, I how do I escape this life? How do I become part of this energy out there, this force? Or how do I, through perpetual reincarnation, reach that point where I somehow finally become one with the great power that occupies the entire universe? The idea is to get out of here. Only Christianity deals with the reality of here. Only Christianity deals with a renewing of the world, of bringing hope to the world. Only Christianity validates the human existence, the human experience. Let me show you how that, how that happens. You come back to 1 John chapter 4. Let me read to you verses 7 through 11. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is what? So if I were to... Oh, sad. Some of you got it really well. God is what? Love. Yes, love that, right? God is love. If somebody ever asked you to define God, all you have to say is love. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son... Excuse me. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his son, excuse me, and his love is made complete in us. Bottom line is this. The greatest proof of Christianity is that God has come to us in Jesus Christ. No other religion does that. Every other religion is a ground-up kind of movement. It is man trying to grasp God. It is man projecting his ideas of who God is and creating religion. Only in Christianity does God come to us. And he came to us in his son. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to live the life we are supposed to live. And what a life he lived of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and kindness. What a love he lived of confronting the truth, yet doing it with grace and kindness and speaking the truth boldly and drawing lines in the sand when it was necessary. But what a life of integrity. Jesus also came to make it possible for us to live a life like that. And the way he did it was to take our sins, our guilt, our shame, our inadequacies on, him, on himself and die our death for us. And to prove that he accomplished that, he was, he was risen from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And not only does Jesus show me how to live in this life, he gives me a picture of what life is going to be like when he returns. Life is going to be like when I receive my new body. Jesus comes to teach us not that he has come to cause us to escape from this world, but that someday he's going to renew this whole world, renew this whole universe. And someday we will live on a new earth, the Bible says. We'll see it in July. And we will finally live the life that God intended us to live when he created Adam and Eve in the garden in the first place. So when you look at Christianity, it deals with reality. It calls it what it is, but it gives you the promise of what will be. And it's all driven by the motivation of God's love. 
God does this, God makes this possible for us out of his love for us. Then in verses 7 through 8, which we read, God tells us that the way then we take what he's done for us is we take his love and we then spread it in the world. And we begin the change of the world that will be completed someday when the entire universe is renewed under God's sovereignty and the return of Christ. No other religion does that. Only Christianity brings that hope. Let me give you kind of a picture of what I'm talking about. How many of you like to take a really good long shower? Besides me. I mean, I, lo I love to take a shower until the hot water runs out, but I get in big trouble for that. So that, that doesn't happen very often. But I love, and I love those showers that are in the middle of the ceiling, you know, with the big round shower head and it comes down like rain. Man, I can just stand there all day, huh? God, in essence, is saying, look, I'm putting the shower head of my love over you, and I'm just raining down my mercy, raining down my love, raining down my peace, raining down my joy, raining down my kindness. I just want to rain my love on you. Why don't you stand there and soak it up? Then he simply says, I want you to let all that love that's raining down on you, I want you to let it drip on your spouse, drip on your kids, drip on your friends, drip on your enemies, drip on the world around you. And let's just start a movement. Let's just start a movement. That'll change the world. I like what Tim Keller writes. Let me read it to you. He says, everyone has a set of exclusive beliefs. And Christianity has exclusive beliefs. Which set of beliefs leads to the most inclusive behavior? Hear what he's asking? Every religion claims to be exclusive, but which one's the most inclusive? Which one has the largest arms open, willing to take whosoever will? He says, I submit this. Take moralistic religion into the center of your life, and you'll feel superior to the secularists. Take secularism into the center of your life, and you'll feel superior to all those stupid religious people. Take the gospel into the center of your life and you'll be humble before people who don't believe what you believe. You will seek to serve people who don't believe what you believe. And you'll know a man who loves people who don't love him is what your whole life is built on. Or a woman who loves people who don't love them. That, he says, is the incredible force that needs to be unleashed in the world. Sincere, true, pure Christianity is unmatched by any other religion. And yet, do people know Christianity that way? Do they know you and me that way? Jesus sent us on a mission into this world to change the world. Are we changing the world? Are we giving people a taste of the kingdom of God by our actions, by our attitude, by our thinking, by our behavior? Philip Yancey, who's a bit of a theologian, prolific author, tells a story about a conference that was held many years ago in Britain. And it brought together religious leaders to discuss comparative religions. And the question was, what is it that sets Christianity apart? What belief does Christianity have that makes it unlike any other religion? And they debated it for hours, and they couldn't find answers. They thought maybe it's the incarnation, but no, there's other religions that have gods that take on human flesh. And, you know, they went through all the different things, and 
they just couldn't find anything. And in walked C.S. Lewis. And he asked the question, what's the rumpus about? He's a Brit. Was. What's the rumpus about, he asked. And they informed him. We're trying to find that one thing, that, that, that belief that makes Christianity unique apart from all other religions. They've been debating it for hours. And he said, that's simple. <laughs> so they all kind of leaned forward. All right. If it's so simple, you tell us what it is. And he says it's summed up in one word, grace. That's it, grace. God doing for us what we cannot earn and do not deserve. And as they debated that, they finally agreed with C.S. Lewis. Yes, that is what separates Christianity from all other religions. And then Yancey adds these words. He says, the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Every other religion is about my effort, my energy, trying to be approved by whatever deity is out there. Only Christianity says, God makes you approved based on what his son has done for you. So what have we learned? Well, we've learned that every religion claims to be exclusive. We've learned that religion is never going to die. We're hardwired to worship. We've learned that the argument that all paths lead to God is absurd, doesn't make sense unless you've been there and seen it all yourself. And now you're doing what you say no one should be free to do, to impose your view on others. We discover that all religions take faith, even, even atheism takes faith. And we've discovered, I believe, that Christianity, of all the religions, offers, offers the truth that truly can change a life and change the world. Now the question is, what do you believe? And do you believe that Christianity is God's revealed exclusive truth, the means by which the only means by which men and women, boys and girls, can have a relationship with God. Next weekend, we're going to look at another common objection to Christianity. You've probably heard of it before. It goes something like this. If God is loving and God is so good, why does God allow such suffering and evil in the world? How many of you ever asked that question? Yeah. You say, hey, wait a minute, Pastor Dale, isn't Mother's Day next weekend? <laughs> Ask your mother about suffering. <laughs> She'll tell you, right, ladies? It'll be a good weekend, I promise. And I think you'll find from God's word next weekend clarity on why suffering, why, why these challenges. And if you know somebody who has those questions, bring them along. Bring them along. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for truth. So oftentimes, Lord, we're labeled as ignorant people, gullible people, but Father, we're not. At least we shouldn't be. Your word, your son, this life itself, Lord, when we just stand back and try to look at it logically, just make sense of it, God, you make so much sense. You answer the questions. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand with confidence in the truth, 
Stand with confidence in our faith. And not, Lord, to allow the constant hum of an unbelieving world to shake us, to trouble us. God, you put us here to demonstrate the answer, to demonstrate the truth. Forgive us that we've been preoccupied with ourselves. You want to change and renew this world. And we are the agents by which you want to do that. So, Lord, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts with a greater confidence we've had in a long time, with a greater hunger and desire for the truth. And for those of us, Lord, who are parents and grandparents, oh, how I pray that we would take that time to help our children and our grandchildren not be shaken by the world they live in. But understand, as Peter says, repeatedly in his epistles. We're strangers in a foreign land, passing through, looking forward to that new day when you renew the entire creation. And I pray for our students and our young adults, Lord, who are inundated by false messages, wisdom from the world. God, I pray, help them to find strength in you, help them find courage in you, help them find conviction in you. I thank you for them. I pray that you bless them. We thank you for Jesus, Father. We thank you for his love and our salvation in him. We look forward to that day when he makes all things new. In Jesus' name.